Imagine if you could sit down at your desk in the morning, piping hot coffee in hand, you could pop open your laptop, double click on a document on your desktop that says life plan, so you could check on what's happening this week, this month, or even this year. Well, I wanna help you create that plan. Let's spend five days together making a roadmap for your future so that you can live all the rest of your days on purpose. Yes, you can own the future that's coming your way. The five-day Own Your Future Challenge is absolutely free to join, and I've got a spot with your name on it. Don't let another week, month, year, or even decade pass you by without owning the vision for who you want to become and the impact you want to make while you're alive. This is five free days of learning from incredible world leaders, helping you to uncover who you truly are and leading you to craft a roadmap and set goals aligned with the future meant for you. This is important. Join me and other amazing global leaders and experts to help you own your future starting May 11th. You can join right now for free at jennaschallenge.com. That's jennaschallenge.com for the five-day Own Your Future Challenge. I can't wait to see you there. Composing the perfect pitch is an art. You have to know yourself, your business, and your offer so well, and then be able to extract the information that is most important to the person or business you're pitching it to. The perfect pitch is engaging and informative, and it inspires interest or better yet, action. I've seen a whole spectrum of pitches in the Gold Digger podcast inbox. Let me tell you, some are excellent. They tell me about the potential guests with ideas for their episode, a glance at their audience, and how it all ties into the overall mission and the brand of the show that I've built. Then there are some really, really terrible pitches. Like I can tell they're just copy and pasted and sent out in mass to show after show, sometimes even forgetting to sub the correct name of the podcast. Today's guest knows what makes a great pitch. Jules Pieri is the co-founder and CEO of the product launch platform called The Gromit. The Gromit is Jewel's third startup, and it was created with the goal to help launch undiscovered products and help them succeed. Do products like Fitbit and Otterbox, SodaStream, and Swell sound familiar? Jules and the discovery team at The Gromit have helped make those a household name. With her experience discovering new and innovative products, you know she's seen some awesome pitches and some not so great ones. Jules is here to share her advice for a great pitch, especially when it comes to the product world, but also how her advice applies across the board. We'll also chat about innovation and standing out in a market and the secret that I learned from my business coach. This is going to be a packed episode. Are you ready? Let's do this. You're listening to the Gold Digger Podcast, where we firmly believe that work doesn't have to feel like work. Self-made millionaire and marketing guru Jenna Kutcher will help you redefine what success looks like. It's time to hear from the experts, listen in on honest conversations, and learn the best tips and tricks that helped others pave their own way and craft their dream career. If you're ready to dig in, do the work, and tackle your biggest goals, you're in the right place. Here's your host, educator, photographer, and mac and cheese lover, Jenna Kutcher.
Thanks to Skillshare for supporting Gold Digger. Skillshare is offering my listeners a limited time offer of two months of Skillshare for free. To sign up, head to Skillshare.com slash Gold Digger 2. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash Gold Digger 2 to get two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 classes for free. Did you know that I have created beautiful templates, resources, and presets that you can own? Shop Jenna Kutcher is filled with all kinds of tools to make running your business even easier. Head to shopjennacutcher.com and use the code GOLDDIGGER to save 20% off your first digital purchase. That's shopjennacutcher.com. Oh, Jules, I am so excited that you are on the show today. And there is so much about your story that absolutely captivated me. We'll talk all about your pitch and pitching in just a few minutes, but welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jen. I'm glad to be here. I'm so excited. Okay, so walk us through what your journey has looked like. Like, how did you dream up your business? What does your world look like now? And how did you get here? Well, I would say the inspiration for the business, we launched products from innovative products from small companies. And I didn't know I was getting my inspiration at the moment I did because I was working in a big company when it <laughs> happened. But I was at Play School, the toy company, and I noticed that our best new ideas didn't make it to market, and it was confounding. And this is the late 90s, and I asked my boss, what's the deal? Why aren't we ever producing new products? And she said, well, what's happening in retail is the little guys are all getting really squeezed out by Kmart, Target, Toys R Us, and Walmart, and the independent specialty retailers are the ones who take our new ideas. So we're losing our farm league. So if the four big guys don't want a product, we can't make it. And that was like the piss off moment for me. Like, it was just <laughs> like that's wrong. And I had I had little kids at the time. So I understood, you know, the possibilities for these toys. And fast forward to much more recently, I was president of a social network. And when I left that company, I had the second aha moment was like, that was a big problem that still hasn't been solved. And then I realized I was a person who was a pioneer in social media. I knew how to create a community. So it was almost like a Bernie Sanders moment. It was like, you know, let's just take these great ideas to the people. Let the people decide. And that was really what we started doing. Launching one product today in October 2008 with a short video straight to a community instead of straight to toy buyers or any other kind of buyer. That's insane. Okay, so... Walk me through, because honestly, Jules, when I hear this, like that was really innovative for that time. Like, did you feel like you were ahead of the curve in a lot of ways? Because I feel like you had to have been. Yeah, but it didn't necessarily feel good. It felt like being crazy. <laughs> <laughs> what did it look like? Like when you started putting it out there, like who did you start putting it out there to? Like, how did you figure out this formula? Like, how did it all happen? Well, it was super hard to explain. I mean, my own brother said, like, when this <laughs> fails, what are you going to do? Well, he said if. He said if, but he meant when. <laughs> I just said, well, I'll get a job. It's not like I'll be a pariah, <laughs> but it looked like a very crunchy, unprofessional version of what we do today. We had videos one day going out about new products. Our very first product was called Bunny Tail Blankets. It was like a sport utility baby blanket. Our third product was a pretty famous product now for people who love chocolate, Cho Chocolate, T-C-H-O. Okay. 
Mrs. Myers was our second product. So that's even bigger, the cleaning products. And our videos were just myself and my co-founder. Every Wednesday, we would come in with five different outfits and pretend it was a different day. We would yes. just change and talk about five different products. And we would drone on and on. We talked too long. Well, it was kind of fun. Like, it was very spontaneous. Your own talk show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No script. We knew what we needed to convey. But our poor video editor, we just delivered, like, a mess. <laughs> like five messes a week. And he made it into maybe three or four minutes, which is way too long today, but three or four kind of played then things have changed since then. That's hilarious. Okay. So tell me now, like, what does your company look like today? Like, cause I can only imagine in the last, what, 10 plus years, things have gotten a little more refined, a little more polished. So fill me in on that today. Well, we went from, you know, the initial little handful of people to we have 90 people today. Wow. I'd say the biggest change, yes, things are more refined, more polished, but the biggest change is we actually built out the rest of the business because for the first four years, all we did, because it's all we could afford to do, was kind of create our market position as, you know, this discoverer of innovative products. So all our resources went into curating these products that were coming our way. Now it's 300 a week and we launched wow. six and it was a lot right from the beginning. And the rest of the functions of the business really didn't exist. We were either like just doing it in our spare time, like marketing or operations or finance or, you know, we weren't really credibly doing it to be fair, but we were laying down tracks like what will make us distinctive, what will create competitive defense, what will create a reputation. We were doing that well, everything else we were doing badly. And now I hope we do most things pretty well because we have actual pros in the jobs doing those jobs. That's so cool. Okay. So one of the best things about getting to interview you was talking about pitches. And I know that you get pitched to all of the time. And so I want to dig into the anatomy of what a good pitch looks like. Like, if any listener is listening today and they want to pitch themselves or a product or an interview or a blog feature or anything, kind of walk me through what you look for in a pitch. I'll start at a little higher level because your listeners might not be looking to pitch a physical product, which we see, you know, a lot of products. But I've also been an entrepreneur residence at Harvard Business School for a while, six years. So I hear a lot of general business pitches as well. And I think the mistake that most people make, and I, I made it myself, and so I kind of am embarrassed when <laughs> thinking about how I did things. You think you have to sound smart and explain a ton about the business. And what's really way more important is like just getting the listener into the zip code of caring about what you're talking about and interacting. So the contrast, let's like think about a PowerPoint. My old PowerPoints used to have a ton of information. I need to prove that I'm smart and I know what I'm talking about. Well, that's a snore. That's not engaging. People tune out, right? And I moved to what I would call like a kindergarten board book version. You know, a lot of your listeners have kids. What's a board book? It's like a picture in two words. My slides move to almost that, like, and that's what I recommend that all you're trying to do is make sure you keep the person listening and they're not going to listen unless it's really simple. And if they have detailed questions and they really do have knowledge, then, you know, let's go. Well, you know, game on, let's talk. But 
if you can't get them to the point of questions, you've kind of already lost them. So number one, it's the simplicity visually or the information. Number two, I think it's really important to be memorable. And memorable to me usually means a couple of stories and a couple of stats that bring what you want people to know home. So in a business that could be your your knowledge of the market opportunity and how big it is or a specific favorable stat within your business, either your margins or your special way of acquiring customers. And then usually the stories are around either your own background or a customer story, something that the win would be when the person leaves the room, they are later that night going to tell that story to somebody. That's the big win. I love that. I just was taught by my business coach. It was, it's called like hook story, close hook story, close. So you know, kicking something off with a good hook where it's like, you know, do you wish you could lose 10 pounds or whatever that is? I, I hate weight loss ones, <laughs> but a good hook where you're like, oh, yes, I do wish I knew how to, you know, maximize my time or save five hours a day or whatever that is. And then the story where people can like imagine themselves in it or connect with that. And then the close, like what is the end result? Like, what do you want people to take? What action? And I've been thinking about that a lot when I read through pitches, like, do they have a hook that drew me in or am I already on to the next one? You know? Right. It's so crazy. Right. So that's great. I just wrote that isn't down. It good? Story I know Dean Graziosi, yeah, he's in. my coach. And I was just listening to him teach on it. I'm like a lifelong learner and just always learning. And he was just sharing how he used to do infomercials like back in the day, which is crazy to me. And he tested out all these different things. And he had this amazing infomercial with Larry King on it. And nobody cared because it was just like tonight on Larry King, I'm interviewing Dean. And he changed it around and all he did was change the hook. And so instead it was, do you ever look at your life and think you should have been farther than you are today? And then today I'm interviewing Dean and here was, and it was, it was like amazing. I was like, oh yeah, like that would hook me in so that I would want to learn more. And now I'm just thinking about pitches in an entirely new way. <laughs> do you think that now I have yeah. a question for you because I love yes. this. Let's say a, a pitch is going to be 15 yep. minutes or something. It's not It's not 90 seconds. Are you continually redeploying hook story close throughout? Mm, Keep in Yeah, that's good. I think here's how I would approach it. This is good. I like this. So I think I would do the main overall hook. Like what's the, the promise that I'm going to deliver? So what is that end result? And then I think for each step that would be required to deliver that promise, you could kind of follow that same format. So let's say if we like were like, it. do you want to know the secret to get your next 1000 Instagram followers today? I'm going to walk you through that. And then each step would be the same thing. And you would share a hook about how to get your engagement up and then how to use hashtags and then something. And you could share stories about how you did all of that. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? Like, okay, I'm going to try to use that. So, okay, you want to get your Instagram followers up. You say that you get people going. And then later on, say it's two minutes in, you say, Maybe like, well, what's the one secret of it about Instagram? Nobody seems mm -hmm. to share. Like that's the whole, right? And then you're going to say whatever that yep. is. Okay. I like it. Because also too, when you think about it, like you, it's pretty easy to keep somebody's attention for a minute. And I'd like to hear your take on this. Because now that you guys still do these videos and you even said earlier that it's changed, you know, if you kept leading in with hooks, I feel like that would keep people on longer to really learn about the product and if it's the right fit for them. So I'm curious to know, how have your videos changed in the last 10 years? 
Well, the world has changed. You mentioned earlier that we were pioneers. There was no such thing as video and e-commerce, literally. There's no such thing. That's crazy. Yeah, I know. Well, YouTube was still not even all that understood yet. I mean, this is 10 years ago. YouTube was inspirational to me, but it wasn't something that people today, you know, would spend a ton of time on. They didn't then. And our stories were kind of super heartfelt, but flabby back then. And people were patient with that. It was okay to have two to three minutes, four minutes. I remember even a five minute video. That would be insane today. Nobody would pay, nobody would pay attention to a five minute video. Not for what we do. I mean, sure, if it were a documentary about a great topic, five minutes is fine. But if you're talking about a product, it really doesn't need five minutes to get most of what you need to, to get across. So we're going to start really quickly with, well, what is it basically? Like, in fact, your, you know, your open and close of a video and, you know, those sort of the branding parts that start a video, the intro and outro. We used to have something that was maybe 20 seconds. I can't remember. You know, now it needs to be just fractions, basically. Like we went from the sort of long branding introduction to we're showing the product immediately and our branding is just sort of an overlay, like we're getting right to the product. And where we take it from there, like, okay, here's the function, here's the space of this product, here's the hook, if you will. Where we take it from there depends on the product. Frankly, we don't have a formula in that there are some really good origin stories or some really good business model stories or maker stories. And we're going to take more time. We will do a longer video. But if it's more of a demonstrable product without, you know, maybe revolutionary manufacturing or materials or something, then it's going to be more of a subtitled demo type video as opposed to a person talking. So like I said, we don't have a formula. We really do respond to the needs of that particular product. That's so cool. So do people pitch their products to you to get them featured by you? Not me personally, but we have a, a lot of ways products come to us. We look at two to 300 a week. So some of them are our own outbound efforts. So let's call half of them inbound, maybe 150. And some come in through, we have a submissions okay. portal. So you know, it's a pretty brief form where you sort of, and our main question is, why is this a grommet? And a little bit, you know, back to like doing your homework. If people understand who we are, they can answer that question. It's not a hard question. They'll understand that we like products with values and, you know, the type of categories you work in and all that kind of thing. We do have, at this point, after 10 years, a lot of relationships, so there's a ton of referrals coming in. I mean, I'm kind of like, you know, a doctor who goes to a party and people all have something to say about their health. And it's very true that, you know, every other person wants to create a product of certainly most everyone, everyone knows somebody who is either thinking about it or has done it, or they'd like to help somebody doing it. So I hear a lot of stories about products and I love it actually. I mean, that's my job. It's, it's interesting. So I do, you know, in my kind of, it's almost like my, my more casual travels is where I get pitched more directly than sitting at my desk at work because my co-founder runs our discovery operation. That's awesome. So I feel like that would be overwhelming to me if people were always like approaching me and trying to sell something to me and sell an idea. But I think this kind of brings us back to like pitches and like what makes something memorable to you? Like if there was a hook that people should include, not in the sense of like, I'm smart or you need me or you need this. Like what kind of hooks could people use in order to get their pitch to be memorable? 
Well, usually, I would say half of our products solve a problem. So you kind of illustrated that already. Like, for instance, one of my favorite grommets is the wine wand. And what it does is it removes the histamines and sulfites from wine, which are the things that make you feel bad. So, you know, you would start by saying, do you ever have the experience of, you know, getting headache after drinking wine or flushed or stuffy nose or you can't sleep? Well, that can be fixed. The simple little wand that you put in swirl in your glass of wine removes those nasty elements and doesn't change the wine. That's a good Ooh, catch. I want right that there. product. <laughs> it's so great. It's always in my bag. I always have multiples because I feel bad if I'm out with friends and I'm making my yeah, wine nice. I didn't even know that was the <laughs> Not thing. Sure. I, I want that. Literally last night, Drew and my mom were having wine and I was like, mm, that's going to give me a headache. Nope. No, thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, oh, I wish I could like telepathically send you this. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so we were talking about good pitches and bad pitches. And I mean, we get hundreds of submissions for this podcast. And you asked me, what are some of the bad pitches? And I said, it's the ones that clearly they did zero research. Like when all of these dudes were applying for the podcast, we had never had a dude on the podcast. It was like, if you took two minutes to just look and see that every single guest was a female, or if you looked up at our Instagram and everyone was a girl, maybe you wouldn't have reached out and pretended like you were a fan. So what kind of research would you recommend someone does before they do any sort of pitching? Well, I have kind of almost like a playbook of how I do this because to this day in my entrepreneurial life, I'm constantly pitching people because I want somebody to join the team or I'm looking for some kind of speaking engagement or press, or I want a partner, you know, so this is something that I do all the time. And my playbook is, you know, obviously, first of all, you try to get a warm introduction. That's not always possible. So what I will do is make sure I open, this is in an email, I open with something that is personal to the person. And it's definitely not formulaic. Like, you had to have done your research to be able to say this thing. And, you know, in the digital world, that's not very hard to do. It could be something about their their background, something they've done in the past. It could be a news item about them. And I will start with this so they know right away, this is a human being here who is specifically writing to you. You know, this is not a form letter. And I keep things really brief. So I will pretty quickly get to the point of what I'm trying to do. And I will use very textured language. Like, I don't try to sound good. I try to sound real. There's a difference. Like, I don't try to sound super professional in a generic way. Like, once I started an email, because this was going to be a really big stretch for this person to meet me. And I started the email, and I don't recommend this, but I started the email with, I am not a (laughs) nutcase. Now, the reason I could start the email that way is because this guy is hilarious. I could tell from this New York Times article I read about him that he's really funny. And that would get him. I wouldn't say that to somebody I didn't know that about. But I'd start with something that lets them know that. The middle of my email is kind of what's the point here? And there's texture in it. And then the close is something that is actionable and simple. But the whole time trying to communicate, you know, I am real. I'm not going to waste your time. And I, I respect you. Like I respect that I'm asking for something here. And I'll even say that sometimes. You know, I understand I'm a stranger reaching out here and you know, your time's valuable and this, you, you have to make a judgment call about whether it's worth it. I promise not to waste your time. 
I love that piece of it. The other day, someone pitched me and it really rubbed me the wrong way because it was like, here is my Calendly to book, like to get an interview for like for my show. Like they wanted me to go to their calendar and book before I had ever even responded to their pitch. And I was like, wait a second. Like, do you realize what you're asking here? And like how, I don't know, it just, I think it rubbed me the wrong way. Cause I was like, wait, 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 wait. Like we haven't even responded back and you want me to book something on your calendar. I don't know why it just felt really off to me. It is really off. And I think busy people develop antennae for that mm-hmm. stuff. Like, you know, if that happened to me, that person, I would never want to deal with because they don't understand the rules of the game, right? They're asking for something. So they're not supposed to ask you to do work. The schedule is your schedule that needs to be respected. And similar when you're asking for introductions, I used to work for Meg Whitman in three different companies. You know, she's a big deal. She ran eBay. She ran Hewlett Packard. She's one of my most, she's my mentor in, in the past, but she's also one of my most important contacts. And I can't believe it when people I barely know ask for an introduction to her. That's just so wrong. That's not how the world works. I don't get to introduce, you know, people to Meg every day of the week, you know, like get to know me. And if I think whatever you're working on is something that she'd be interested in, sure. But you're trying to skip right past me or use me. No way. I'm not going to do that to her. I'm so grateful to have the support of Skillshare for today's show. Skillshare is an online learning community for creators with more than 25,000 classes in design, business, and so many other creative and professional areas. You can take classes in social media marketing, mobile photography, creative writing, illustration. If you need to up-level your business or turn your hobby into a revenue stream, you can learn it with Skillshare. I took a doodling for iPads course and learned how to turn my own handwriting into the brand elements all over my website and Instagram. Whether you're looking to discover a new passion, start a side hustle, or gain new professional skills, Skillshare is there to keep you learning and growing. Invest in yourself with a class. Skillshare is making it so easy for you to join right now. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. That's two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 classes for free. Sign up at Skillshare.com slash Golddigger2. Again, head to Skillshare.com slash Golddigger2 to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash Golddigger and the number two. No one ever told you that running a business meant you suddenly had to fill a million roles from being a masterful email template writer to a photo editor, a graphic designer to a social media strategist, not to mention actually working with paying clients. Yeah, nobody told me that either, which is why last year I decided to pull all the tools, templates, and strategies and put them into one place where you can get your hands on them. That's right, from pricing guides that you can customize to email templates, media kits to social media strategies, even editing presets, you can get all of the things that I've created for my own business and use it in yours. And you can save yourself 20% off your first digital purchase using the code GOLDDIGGER. Head to shopjennacutcher.com to make this entrepreneur life just a little bit easier. That is shopjennacutcher.com. And don't forget the code gold digger is going to save you 20% off your first digital purchase. I love that because I think what happens is like there's almost this like entitlement that can go on with pitching. And I feel like now more than ever, like 
I want to provide value for people. And so it's up to me to do the research to share the value I can provide. And I know I actually just had Kylie pull your pitch that you pitched to this show and you came up with different ideas of what you could share with us and and things you can address. And it was so thoroughly thought out in a sense because it said, here are gaps that you have that I can fill and provide value to your audience versus here's what I'm great at. Let's talk about it. And so I think there's some interesting ways that people can go about pitching. And if you really want something, do the work, like like really figure out how you can be of service, not how someone else can serve you. Well, what you're really talking about is building business relationships. Some people would call it a network, but I think of it as a less kind of scary word, network scares people, it's relationships. And some are enduring and some are brief. I'm not claiming that every person you interact with will be a permanent fixture in your life. But even within a brief interaction, it's that exchange you're talking about that really matters, adding value. And I have a friend, Mike Troiano, who's really good at this. And he always talks about the first scene in The Godfather, where apparently, I, can't, I have to admit, I haven't seen it lately. Essentially, you know, the this person is, is a supplicant to, you know, The Godfather. And he, you know, in the mafia sort of way, The Godfather made it very clear, if I do this, you will owe me. And that's the sort of negative side of it. But that that's just a sort of laying it out on the table. That is how it works. Like, you do things to be kind and to be helpful. That is the reason why you should do it. I do help people all the time without anything expected in return. But over the course of time, those things tend to balance out. You know, people tend to then be very helpful to you because you've been helpful without any strings attached. And I think that's that's essential to an entrepreneurial career. I, I think people are surprised when I wrote my book, the chapter I ended up being most proud of was the one about this topic. It wasn't the ones that are maybe more specific to creating products. It was about, okay, but how do you get to the people you need and the knowledge that they have and, the, and maybe the partnerships, the resources that they can offer? It's all about this. It's about how you build that network and those relationships. I think that's so important. And what I love about the way that you framed your book is it's not this, if you build it, they will come mentality. And I feel like a lot of people nowadays enter into this business and they're so focused on looking like a business that they're not actually a business. I just had an amazing guest on the show, The Budget Nista. She is hilarious, but she asked the question, Like, do you look like a business? Like, do you have a website and business cards or are you an actual business making money? And so pitching can play a huge part in the difference between those two. And I think a lot of times people go head down in making sure that they appear to be a business, yet they've never actually sold anything. Do you have any tips on, you know, making those sales? Like if you're building something, you can't assume they're going to come. So how do we get the word out about what we've created? Well, I think it's a game, you know, a game of inches initially. I think in the beginning, it's actually a personal sales effort. And, you know, I'm saying this kind of generically, whether it's a product business or a consulting business, but the feedback loop and doing those direct outreaches yourself is super important because you're probably shaping what you're offering at the same time that you're selling it. You don't generally come out of the gate with the perfectly baked final anything, whether it's, like I said, services or a product, there'll be iterations. So there's no substitute for having that direct contact. And it's kind of a like, do the work. 
basically. It's a do the work. And, you know, if you don't love your product or your service business enough to do that work, if, you know, then it's probably not a business that you really can, that you'll have the legs for, like the long-term commitment to. You know, you've got to love talking about whatever it is. Even, and it doesn't mean you have to suddenly be, you know, salesperson in a bad plaid suit or something like, you know, super extroverted. It, it has nothing to do with your personality. It has to do with your passion and your knowledge and your, you know, interest in conveying that. Okay. So I have a question for you and it's something I've been learning about. So I feel like a lot of times when we go to pitch a product, our initial thought is that we should just talk about all of the features. So you could, you know, apply this to like an actual product, like a microphone, and you could talk about, you know, the different settings it has and all these functionalities without actually conveying like what the person is going to get, which would just be great, clear audio. The same thing happens in the online world. Let's say I build out a course and I want to drone on and on and on about the 20 modules and the 18 downloads and all these things. Do you find a difference in people that are really good at just painting like here's the end result or here's how this is going to spark joy or here's how this is going to save you time versus people that just drone on and on about features that consumers might not care about even if they wanted the product? Yeah, I think you kind of your hook story close is pretty good template for that because you want to get people into the zone of where this product plays, first of all, plays in their life or what problem it solves. And so that's where you start, like the why should I care point. And it is interesting, people who've worked on a product for a while, let's say they're on their second or third iteration of it, they'll often start with, and now it comes in green. And I'm like, well, I don't even know what it is yet. And they're talking about like, okay, Bluetooth. And like, yeah, that's really important to you because you just spent six months nailing Bluetooth. But I don't even know if we're talking about something that goes in the kitchen or the car yet, you know, and so... It is funny, and that's part of Ben the Gromit's role in the world because it's often easier to tell somebody's story for them than they they can tell it themselves. And and here's how some of your listeners will recognize this: when I'm researching a new company or product, I'll start on the homepage and I'll you know try to click through a couple of their links, but quite often I'll just skip all that and go straight to a press story because journalists are great at this, right? Like, what do I need to know about this company? Their website is totally confusing me. Mm-hmm. But I go to some, you know, even a local, just a local journalist will probably do a better job than the website. So you're kind of thinking of maybe what would be on the package? A package, a physical package has to be almost like a flashcard, right? Like somebody in a store is going to walk by, they're disinterested, they're not necessarily looking for what you're offering. And you get uh, fractions of a second at times. And what would be there? What would, what would get them started to have some basic understanding? And that that's where the pitch would start, too. I feel like Shark Tank is an amazing show at walking people through what you just talked about. Because, you know, these people get to get in front and share their, like, pride and joy and pitch it. And they get to demonstrate and sample and all of these things. But I feel like a lot of times with products, the sharks will turn down the opportunity to back a product because there's education that needs to happen or information that needs to be shared before someone could ever make a purchasing decision. So I love what you just shared because a lot of times we're so feature focused that people don't even understand how do I use a product? What does it look like in my life? 
where do I use it? You know, like we get so focused on the details versus the use. And I think I'm sure you see that all the time with the way that products are being shared with you. Yeah. I mean, people, even in their own careers, they sort of forget like, well, what's the backstory here? And I I would fault myself for that when my early days of pitching the grommet, I, you know, when I was pitching, I was generally pitching for investment. And one of the things I didn't understand back in the day was how important my own sort of gritty personal background would be to my pursuing this business, the tenacity that I started showing since I was a young person. I, I sent myself to boarding school when I was 14. Like I literally snuck behind my parents' backs and applied to boarding school. I love my parents, but I did not love Detroit public school. So I, I had to get myself out of there. And that's a very unusual thing, right? A 14 year old to eject themselves from everything they know. And that was when I started being an entrepreneur. And I can tell you, I never once shared that story when I was making an investment pitch. What? Never thought of yeah. it. Like I would say, oh, I'm a Harvard MBA or whatever. I'd say like the obvious credential stuff that, you know, frankly, I don't need to say. You could read it on a LinkedIn profile. You should say the things people can't read on a LinkedIn profile, the things that make you you. And in the case of being an entrepreneur, I now know it's all about the ability to persevere, to be resourceful, to, you know, walk through walls. At one point, Amazon was interested in investing in the grommet and they said, and they surprised me. It was a spontaneous introduction. I showed up to make my pitch and I didn't have to hardly get through it at all because they'd already knew us and had researched us. But the thing that the person at Amazon said was, we like investing in this kind of business because you are a missionary and missionaries stick with stuff and mercenaries give up too easily. Isn't that interesting? Whoa. So wait, what ended up happening? Well, it didn't happen, but this is a little bit of a sidebar. I thought it was like, game over. Yay, Amazon wants to invest. This is going to be so easy now because yeah. I, I hadn't raised much capital yet. And what they wanted to do, uh, big companies tend to follow a professional institutional investor. They don't want to do all the legwork of the diligence on the company, and they don't want the liability of making mistakes. So they will follow the lead of a venture capitalist, typically a big company making an early stage investment. And that's what they want to do. They said, you find a venture capital firm and we will follow, you know, we'll be a fairly passive investor, but, you know, we would like a double digit ownership of the company. Those were the terms. So I started calling like my VC friends thinking like I'd be having a bidding war or something. (laughs) And what I did not know, such a big learning was the company's way too young for a strategic investor first of all, like they felt like it sort of closed a lot of doors for us because if Amazon didn't continue to invest, it would be a negative signal for the company mm-hmm. in the market. Yep. So too early. And number two, nobody in, in Boston had co-invested with Amazon. It'd been a long time since Amazon had any activity in Boston. So they were just sort of the big bad wolf. Nobody knew. And investors, it's a people business. They don't want to be sitting on the board or next to somebody who could be disruptive. And they had heard concerning things about Amazon, some real, probably some not. But so it was two things like we don't know you and it's too early. So I was, it didn't happen. What did you learn in that process of like going through that, like quick, you didn't have a ton of time to prepare, pitch, share, and then like, and not get the end result that you had thought you wanted, but probably in the big scheme of things, it's probably kind of a blessing in disguise. Yeah, it was. I I mean, I was just incredibly naive about how 
all that stuff worked. And so it was a blessing in disguise. And I guess, you know, I just told you one of the things that stuck with me, that missionary, not mercenary. Like I didn't even realize how much I was that or how important that was. So that became something that I kind of, at least internally, claimed a lot. Um, I learned something that it's kind of a hard lesson, but basically a pitch is it's a 30 second event, essentially. Like I came in to such a warm audience. That's not typical. I, I mean, that I never had that happen again where they were just primed, basically. And it was mainly because they could see when we sent traffic to Amazon, it converted like if somebody found a product on the grommet and then they went over to find it on Amazon, if they came from the grommet, they converted, they, they bought like nobody they'd ever seen, like we sold them. So it was impressive to them and the things we were doing, they were interested in beyond that. So, you know, that doesn't happen very often. Mostly you're going to have to make that 30 seconds happen with what you, you bring to the table. And I think I learned that like it was lucky that they were ready, but you've got to make that circumstance happen without that prime, without them doing any of the homework, without them prepared to like you. You got to get them to that same place very quickly. Amazing. Gosh, what an experience. So before we end, I'm not letting you off the hook because the grommet was actually your third startup. So can you walk us through some of the things that maybe felt like failures, but they weren't actually failures and how those led you to where you are today? The business just before this was called Ziggs, the one I was president of. And I was an early pioneer in social media. We competed directly with LinkedIn. So obviously, you know who won <laughs> that one. We were sold to reputation.com, but, you know, the real market was built by LinkedIn. And what I learned there was there was actually kind of a, a challenge right from the beginning and that LinkedIn was really just better poised geographically and especially financially to succeed in the business. Our product was better, but I learned that's not enough. There are a whole lot of circumstances around the business that will create success. And I had come in understanding the product to be the edge and, and I left knowing, oh, wow, it's way more than that. It's way more than the product. So I learned that. Obviously, I, I learned about social media, which enabled me to start the grommet and have some confidence about that. I would say my first startup is still a thriving business. It's Continuum. It's an innovation consultancy. It competes directly with IDEO. The two businesses were born at the same time, pretty much the same time, same business model. That one I had a really interesting, it was more personal experience, but I joined the business right out of business school. I was the first designer to go to Harvard Business School. I, I go back to my field, my first love, design, to do marketing at this firm. Two months into it, I'm laid off. And I hadn't like been there long enough to even screw up yet. It wasn't personal. Like it was just bad circumstances, bad things happened in the business. And I would have laid me off too, but because marketing was a luxury, but I went, I was like the person who wouldn't go home that day. And it wasn't emotional. I was just thinking like, I like this business. I really want to help it. And what it really needs is sales. It doesn't need marketing. It needs sales. They need projects. So I went to the two co-founders. I literally scrawled something on a piece of paper, like, pay me $1,000 a month. And here's my commission plan. I just pulled it out of the air. And I said, I'll work three days a week because I was thinking I, I'm probably going to have to still look for a job. So I need some time. But if you guys are willing to do this, I'm willing to, to give it a go. I'll try being a salesperson. And I ended up staying for five years. 
I ended up helping to build the business. My claim to fame there was bringing in the Reebok pump shoe, which you're a little bit older listeners will remember was a quite revolutionary shoe. And I'm very proud of what I contributed there, but man, I had to really like, that was a horrible moment. My business school friends were all making way more money to begin with doing way more glamorous things. I was literally the only person in my class to join a startup was not a popular thing to do. So I was doing this weird job to begin with. I was underpaid. And then I'm laid off. Humbling. Two months. And then I'm getting paid $12,000 a year. $12,000 a year. Um, Doesn't it, it always work out? Isn't that something you wish you could just tell yourself is like, it's going to work out? Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted that so many times. I have three sons. And I, I remember when my three-year-old looked like he was going to be a sociopath. I thought... Just give me a movie when he's like 18 and oh, 28. Oh, no, it all turns and out okay. <laughs> yeah, just give me the movie. Oh, my goodness. You know, okay, Jules, where can everybody find you, connect with you, check out the Gromit? Give us all of the places online to connect. Well, I'm pretty active on Instagram, and everything's just under my name. It's just J-U-L-E-S-P-I-E-R-I, like so easy to find me at anywhere. Twitter and Instagram are where I'm most active. Obviously, LinkedIn. My website's thegromit.com. And there's a website for my book. It's the same title as the book, How We Make Stuff Now. And it's I'm keeping that updated because, you know, I wrote the book and, you know, finished the draft literally a year ago yesterday. And so in that year, I learned things that I'm adding to the website. So it's a pretty vibrant place to stay up on whatever it is your problem is, whether your problem is like we talked about earlier, sort of building a network or it's protecting your IP or marketing, you know, the website's organized. Oh, along I cannot wait to order well. that wine wand. I'm like ready to go. So <laughs> you already have a customer in me. <laughs> Thank you Yay, so you much, it. Jules. <laughs> so, so excited for this to hit the air. Jenna, thanks so much for having me. It was a blast. Is anybody else running to the grommet to buy that wine wand? I mean, seriously, I already have it in my cart and we just logged off of the interview. I love talking to Jules today because I feel like between us, we had some amazing conversation about tips of what to do and what not to do when it comes to pitching. I want to remind you, episode 195 are 11 secrets we've never shared about pitching and it kind of walks you through the steps that we talked about today, how to share your story so it's memorable, how to show up in service, how to explain how you can add value to someone else's company or audience. There are so many secrets about pitching. And let me tell you, I've seen really great pitches and I've seen a heck of a lot of terrible ones. The good ones are the ones that you get to hear on this podcast like Jules today. I hope today's episode opened your eyes to some new possibilities, got you excited about how you can be of service to others, and got you ready to craft the perfect pitch no matter who it is that you're pitching to. Thank you so much for hitting play on another episode of the Gold Digger Podcast. Until next time, keep on digging your biggest goals. Thanks for listening to the Gold Digger Podcast. Dive into the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at www.golddiggerpodcast.com. If you love the show, share it with a friend. The more the merrier. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time, you gold digger you.